Your wedding video might have been made by the director of Marvel Shang-Chi. I did a lot of wedding videos in order to just pay the bills. So you're telling me there are people out there with wedding videos that they can say were directed by the director of the latest Marvel film? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there are. There's quite a few. <laughs> That's right. Destin Cretton might have shot your wedding video. We'll find out more about this fast-rising filmmaker as we delve into his origin story. Welcome back to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. I'm Beth Accomando, and today I talk with an old friend. This month, Cinema Junkie looks to Asians on screen and behind the camera. For part one, I speak with filmmaker Destin Cretton, who burst on the indie scene with Short Term 12, and has just helmed Marvel's first Asian superhero film, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. For part two, I'll be speaking with Brian Hu of the San Diego Asian Film Festival to look at the long cinematic journey to get from stereotypes of Fu Manchu, Charlie Chan, and Oriental exoticism to Shang-Chi. But right now, I get to speak to Destin Cretton, who I met almost two decades ago when he was a student and didn't even look to filmmaking as a hobby yet. But before we do that, I need to take one quick break. And to take us into the break with a share your addiction is my friend from Wales, Alid Thuellen. Since the theme for next month is spies, I'll let this Bond fanatic share one of his many 007 obsessions. Hi, I'm Alid Thuellen, and if there's one film that I've become completely addicted to, it is undoubtedly the James Bond movie Moonraker. Now, when I was growing up, my father was very much a Sean Connery fan, which is not surprising given the generational gap. And he hated Moonraker, thought it was the worst thing ever. And I kind of understood why when I was growing up. I very much shared his opinion about this because the film is completely ridiculous. But as I have grown up, as I fell in love with Roger Moore's Bond more and more and more over the 80s, I came to understand that what Moonraker is, it is the absolute epitome of fantasy Bond, which is what Roger was. You have this you have this insane bad guy. You have the idea of him in space. He's going to repopulate the Earth in an Adam and Eve style. And you have Roger going from set piece to set piece, looking already looking too old, years before he retired from the role. And it's completely ludicrous. What it is more than anything is Austin Powers, pre-Austin Powers. And that in itself is very, very impressive. Thanks, Alan. Get ready for Bond next month. But now, a little break before my interview with Destin Cretton. Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. 
Let's geek out together about the things we love. Welcome back to Cinema Junkie. Before we dive in, I just wanted to note that there's some colorful language in this episode. So if you have kids around, you might want to save this one for later. Anyway, I met Destin Cretton 20 years ago at a student film festival I used to run called Film School Confidential. Then I had the pleasure of showcasing his student work at the festival, starting in 2002 with Long Branch, A Suburban Parable, and continuing with Bartholomew's Song, a dystopian sci-fi film. Bartholomew 467, Then he delivered Deacon's Mondays and his award-winning Short Term 12. Good morning, Short Term 12! Ten minutes to line up for breakfast! With each film, he tried something new, but he always displayed a compassion and empathy for his characters as they struggled to find connections and a place in the world. Through the student festival, I had the opportunity to watch him grow and mature as both a person and a filmmaker. But he always displayed a careful thoughtfulness, and this interview provides insights into his creative process in ways that can be helpful to any filmmaker. We talk about community, challenging oneself as an artist, and of course, about Shang-Chi. So it's not often I get to say that I was there when a filmmaker's career began, but I can say that about Destin. <laughs> I mean, you can you can say that you were there before I even knew that I could do it as a hobby. It was Film School Confidential. We were watching Greg Durbin's short film, and that was before I had done anything. So you and everything you've done in San Diego has been a huge inspiration for me. Well, I was going to say, what was it that really made you decide that you were hooked on filmmaking, that this was something you really had to do? I remember the first time that I did a short film that was this little black and white silent movie shot on Super 8, and I showed it to my class, and it was the first time that I experienced that buzz and anxiety that comes with exposing yourself to an audience. It was also the first time that I got to see the response from that audience. And the entire process of making a, a collaborative piece of art and then watching that piece of art interact with an audience, that was so energizing to me. That happened in film school. It was actually just before I came down and, and came to your film school confidential, but I had already been hooked on the process of filmmaking. What I'm hooked on has nothing to do with awards, film festivals, buzz of a movie I'm working on. It, it really is such a pure, fulfilling process to work on collaborative art pieces like this. It's really been a delight and a thrill to see you evolve through your student shorts and early independent films. And since you're doing a Marvel origin film right now, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, I thought maybe we could do a little of your origin story Ooh. and kind of go back into uh, your early roots of filmmaking. But one thing I noticed from seeing all your student films and watching you progress, even though you worked in a lot of different genres and the styles were a little different, the one thing that really linked all your films was this thematic sense of community. 10 minutes to line up for breakfast. We have waffles today. Oh, the waffles are pretty good here. Nice. Hey, Natalia, do we have anything for Jane? I made her a cupcake, it's in the fridge. 
And that always seemed to be something that drove your storytelling. And I was wondering what it was about that that kind of attracted you or, or made you kind of keep that thread running. I was actually just having a conversation with somebody recently about what San Diego meant to me and what that time there meant to me. I lived there for 10 years after living the first 20 years of my life on Maui in the middle of the Pacific. And San Diego for me was exactly that. It was a community of people who I really felt safe around. I felt supported to explore and take chances and really find out what I wanted to do, what kind of stories I wanted to tell. And I actually tried going to LA a little earlier and the pace of it, the big money that's that's surrounding the industry, all of that was truthfully, it was just terrifying. I was just, my heart was in my throat. It didn't feel fun. It was just scary. And I decided I, I couldn't move to LA. I thought I would never move to LA. So I went back to, to San Diego and decided to, to make movies there. And uh, I have a tendency to isolate myself. If left to my own devices, I, I will become a bit of a hermit. But I, I also know that's not healthy for me. I get in my head too much. I start overthinking things. I stop creating. I start feeling like the world is doomed and, I, and there, there's no point in anything and I just sit in my bed. So for me, active community has been something that has kept me going and kept me healthy and I mean, I'm not planning to put it into each of my projects, but even Shang-Chi, every project that I've done, I've used it to process through things that I am thinking about or going through emotions that I'm dealing with. Throughout the writing process, typically one of the answers to these problems has something to do with community, has something to do with finding stability or love or getting back on your feet by holding the hand of of somebody else and walking through shit together. So yeah, I suppose that's where that theme kind of comes from. Now, in addition to the narrative shorts that you did, you also did some documentary work. You did Born Without Arms and Drachmar. On the High Noble Purpose, our whole goal is to as closely as possible recreate medieval life in all of its facets. Some people just were born in the wrong time. What did you learn from working in documentary? I learned a ton from doing documentaries, and not only those documentaries, but also I, I did a lot of wedding videos um, in order to just pay the bills. But I love them. Like, wedding videos are also extremely fulfilling because you have this audience of two <laughs> and their families, and when they watch what you've made, you get the best reviews every time. But one of the biggest things that I learned that I carried over into every time I do a movie is working with people. To me, working with actors is not much different than working with the people that, that I'm interviewing for a documentary. What, what, what kind of girl would you want to meet? A girl who likes herself for who she is, likes me for who I am, and likes to go on adventures and plays video games, and likes dragons. So much of it is about really listening and treating people with respect and getting them comfortable in front of a camera so they present the best version of themselves. And I also 
naturally do that because whenever I'm in front of the camera, I feel so uncomfortable. And if I don't have somebody really trying to make me feel comfortable, I will just come across a nervous wreck. So that experience doing those documentaries was, I mean, for me, it's always an exercise in empathy and exercise in putting yourself in into the shoes of the person that you are filming and really championing them, really caring about them so you can create the best version of their story. I try to test you on your first day to see what you let them get away with, so just say no to everything. Okay, okay. No, I think the short film of yours that was most exciting was Short Term 12, and you did a blog for me when you were at Sundance. Uh, right now I'm walking in the snow in Park City. The snow is coming down pretty hard, and I'm freezing my butt off. <laughs> in fact, you like went off the grid for a while, and I was worried what happened, and it turned out you had won. <laughs> but that also became a feature film. Talk a little bit about the origins of that story, because this is something that's very personal to you and that you drew on your own life for. Yeah, one of the jobs that I worked right when I was out of college was working at a group home for at-risk teenagers in southern San Diego. And it was a, a very impactful experience for me. I worked there for two years. And it was one of those experiences that just really opened my eyes to the harsh reality of the world and the harsh reality that a lot of people, young men and women, are are living through. Um, it also really opened my eyes to how deeply we can impact each other as humans, whether you're, you're a family member by blood or just somebody who who has the power to lift someone up or hurt them because they really look up to you. And so... That experience stayed with me after I left that job and went to film school. And after three years at San Diego State Grad School, I was trying to figure out what to do for my thesis project. And I was looking through my, my old journals from the time that I was working there. And that's where that story came from. Fuck that Kenny, man. I don't do what I'm told. I'm from a punk that this cake from the last bag to be sold. So don't call me son, cause you ain't my fucking pot. I don't give a fucking shit if you had sex with my mom. And you can't afford to be the father that you swore to be. Never supported me, wish moms aborted me. But it's alright that you was missing in action. I think I could get used to not getting my ass kicked. I'm living in havoc, and it's your fault, asshole. I'm the way that I am. And it's your fault, asshole, that I'm only 5'10. And it's your fault, asshole, that I'm stuck in here. One day I'll run away and show up at Cheers and have a with all the clowns that know my name is sing. Da, 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 da. That's really good. I like that cheers part. Yeah, it's tight, huh? Da, yeah. Da, 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 da. yeah, it's tight. Thanks. And in translating it to the big screen, you decided to also change the gender of the character. You had a, a male character in the short, and then it became a female lead for the feature. Short term 12, this is Grace. Remember, you're not their parent, you're not their therapist. You are here to create a safe environment, and that's it. Got it. Luis, you better be up. So this is how it's gonna be. I just find that interesting because, you know, this is such a very personal story. What made you decide to kind of do that switch and maybe get a slightly different perspective on those experiences? There's no strategy behind anything that I do, except like when something's not working, it's just give it a big shake until you until I can start moving again. 
I tried initially to just do a straight adaptation of the short film into a feature with all the same characters. But that wasn't the intention when I made the short film. I didn't know I would even finish the short film. <laughs> so it just wasn't working. And I, I have three sisters and I was talking to them about some of the issues of you know, residual effects from family situations and how we are dealing with it. And my supervisor, when I was working at this place, was a female supervisor who I really looked up to. I decided to change the main character to that point of view, which was a new challenge for me, a new exercise in empathy and trying to put myself into another person's shoes. Jack, I'm sorry. Please cancel the pass until we figure this out because I know her and I know that things are not good at home. And how do you know that? Because she read you a children's story? Don't fuck with me, Jack. I am on the floor every day with those kids. And last night, that girl sat next to me and she cried and she tried to tell me the only way that she knew how. Grace, you are a line staff. It's not your job to interpret tears. That's what our trained therapists are here for. Then your trained therapists don't know shit. It's also still a huge reflection of myself is put into that character too. I see so much of my own anxieties and hopes and dreams and fears wrapped up in the Grace character and a lot of the characters in that movie. When, when that movie was like accepted by people at, at South by Southwest, it was, I remember sitting in the back of a theater um, and hearing people laughing and engaging with the material. And I was just, just bawling my eyes out because I, I, I felt so connected to everybody in that room because they, I, I was like, everybody in this room is seeing my fears, seeing my anxieties up on the screen and they're engaging with it. It was a very beautiful experience for me. Well, what I really like about your films is your ability to find humanity in all the characters. And when you did Just Mercy, which is about a civil defense attorney, if we're just going to accept the system that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent, then we can't claim to be just. It would have been really easy to kind of fall into some tropes about the characters that are less sympathetic. I'd like to ask you that question one more time. Was the testimony that you gave at Walter McMillan's trial true? No, sir. Not at all. Order, please. Did you see Mr. McMillan on the day Rhonda Morrison was murdered? No, sir. Did you drive his truck to Monroeville that day? No, never did. Did you go into Jackson Cleaners and see Mr. McMillan standing over the body of Rhonda Morrison? Absolutely not. But what I really loved is that some of these characters that we expect to hate and expect to find certain things in, you really found humanity in them and made them very multidimensional instead of, you know, a flat kind of take on them. To me, that's life. Like, I, I rarely, anytime I meet somebody and have a first impression of them, no matter what it is, that's probably, in my experience, 100% of the time incorrect. And if circumstances force me to get to know that person, every single time they become a more interesting person. And that's what happens with my characters, too. Like Sometimes they start off as, as the typical villain or the typical baddie. 
but through the writing process, you're kind of getting to know the, these characters as they're in different situations, and I can't help but start to like them and try to understand them and see them from different points of view. So that's the fun part. You are now working on a Marvel film, Shang-Chi, and comic books tend to draw heroes and villains in slightly more black and white kind of dimensions. But I feel like after Black Panther, we've seen this sense of like, no, they don't necessarily have to be you know, clearly divided into heroes and villains. So what from that kind of a background that you're bringing to the film, what did, how did that play out in this universe of, you know, comic book characters and superheroes? For me, this, this movie is, um, emotionally, it's not that different of a process than any movie that I've done before. What I love about Marvel and working for them, and I think it's the reason why people keep going back to Marvel movies is because they they deeply care about these characters and they don't see them as heightened superheroes who are on another level. They see them as people and they want to explore their emotionality and they want to explore their relationships and make them relatable to us. And when when you watch this movie, I think people will be maybe surprised by how much they can relate to even the the villain of our movie. Um, that's not to say they would people would be doing the things that the villain does in response to his pain, but I think you you get enough context to why he's doing these things that it's easy to relate to him as a person. I trained you to the most dangerous people in the world kill you. Son, it's time for you to take your place by my side. That was Tony Leung in Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. I need to take one more break and then I'll be back with Destin Cretton to talk more about his Marvel film. And to take us into the break, here's Gary Dexter, who'll be joining me next month to share his passion for spy movies, from the fantasy world of James Bond to the gritty realism of John le Carré. He has a cold turkey to share. He wants some haters to stop hating this Bond film right now. Uh, so my name's Gary Dexter. Question, why do James Bond fans hate Quantum of Solace with the vehemence that they do? Sure, it's not a perfect film, and it can't hold a candle to Casino Royale, one of the very, very best films in the franchise. But it was written during a writer's strike, and even not considering that, it's a really pretty solid entry. There are some far worse films. Moonraker, Die Another Day, I'm looking at you. And the pre-title sequence is so intense that you pretty much need a Valium and a little lie down after that thing's done. Then the immediate post-sequence is also incredibly intense. It's not great, it's not perfect, but it's a much, much better entry in the franchise than people give it credit for. It has some really strong performances, some fantastic action sequences. The DP is very, very good, and Craig is as reliable as we know him to be now. So again, look at it with a more open mind, please. Thanks, Gary. I can't wait to discuss more Bond films with you next month. Now sit tight for a quick break, and I'll be right back.
Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. (laughs) It's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet. When you're hungry for information and entertainment, you go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, you're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas, like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you. I'm back with filmmaker Dustin Cretton, who talks about the transition from working on short films and small indie projects to helming one of Marvel Studios' tentpole summer releases. Even when I, we were doing short films in, in San Diego, when we literally had nobody to answer to, we were still doing test screenings for audiences, getting feedback, trying to make the best version of a movie that would actually connect to an audience. I was never the fuck you, I make what I want type of filmmaker. I love the collaborative nature of getting a whole bunch of people focused on telling one story and seeing what evolves as we all move together. I love having a crew that feels free to say, hey, that doesn't feel right. I like being informed and and watching a, a story grow together. Working with Marvel was... I mean, yes, it's it's huge and it's different in so many ways, but the core of the process was not that different to anything I've done before. Um, from my experience with Marvel, they, they attract really good people who work with them for a long time um, because the nature of the collaboration is very open. Everybody has a voice. There is an environment of exploration, of let's try it. And that's a pretty exciting environment to work in. So this month, my podcast is dedicating a theme to representations of Asians on screen. So going back to, you know, representations of yellow peril and oriental exoticism. And I want to know, how does it feel ushering in this first Asian superhero in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Do you feel a lot of responsibility? Is this something fun, a challenge you looked forward to? (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of responsibility, for sure. I've gone through my process of really stressing out about that responsibility, of really carrying the weight maybe a little too much to where it was I was unhealthily stressed about it. But I do think that that amount of stress was helpful to get this story to the place where it is, where I feel very proud of what we're putting out into the world. And I feel extremely proud of the team that put this together and the incredible cast that we put together. Yeah, so I, I feel very happy to be contributing something special to not only the MCU, but to the world of Asian cinema and specifically Asian American cinema. I feel this 100% cannot be the end. I feel very happy that we are contributing one next step in the process. 
And was there anything in particular that you felt was really important for you to make sure was in this film or something that you felt you wanted to make sure you saw be a part of this particular film? Asian cinema is huge and deep and rich and so varied. Asian American cinema is a lot smaller of a scope. And and particularly the cinema that kind of has broken through in the past and gotten past just the Asian or Asian American market and has been things that have been movies that I love and grew up on. Jackie Chan movies, Jet Li movies, Donnie Yen and the Ip Man series, uh, of course. I mean, it all started with Bruce Lee when I was a, a kid. He's unstoppable, unbeatable, unbelievable. He's Bruce Lee, the master of karate, kung fu, delivering that Chinese connection. All of that is so special and made me so proud to be of Asian descent. But there also became a point where there wasn't enough variety to give other aspects to, to the Asian experience. Not all of us are speaking broken English and coming from China or Asia. And there wasn't a lot of just Asian American representation that felt like my friends, that felt like me. And so we wanted to contribute that to the MCU. We wanted our Shang-Chi to really feel like me and my friends and and be relatable to anybody who is American, whether you're Asian American or whatever ethnicity you are. My name's not technically Sean. What what is it? It's Shang-Chi. Shang-Chi. Shang. 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 S-H-A-N-G. Shang. Shang? Yeah. You change your name from Shang to Sean? Yeah, I don't. I wonder yeah. how I wonder how your father found okay, you. I was 15 years old, all right? What is what is your name change logic? You going into hiding okay. and your name is Michael, you want to change it to Michael. That's that's not what happened. It's, you, it's like, "Hi, my name's Gina. I'm going to go into hiding. My new name's Gina." And then we also wanted to make sure that each of the characters in this movie were not furthering stereotypes that have been continually revamped over the years. And I feel very happy about that, that every character in this movie, there's a lot of Asian faces, no two are the same. They're, they have drastically different personalities. And if anything, when you walk out of this theater, I hope whether consciously or subconsciously, you will be much less likely to say all Asians are the same. Now, you have some young talent in this film. That's very exciting. But I do want to ask you, you have some Hong Kong cinema royalty in this film in Tony Lung and Michelle Yeoh. So what was it like working with them? Uh, the first time I watched Chungking Express was in when I was at San Diego State, and I actually watched it in an international cinema class. And like anybody who, had, who has ever seen a film with Tony in it, you're just like an instant mega fan. And then I started devouring everything that he'd made. 
In the Mood for Love was the second thing I saw. He's just been a legend in my head ever since then. So when we were first discussing who to go out for the, the role of Shang-Chi's dad, the truth is that we were up against a lot with this character because he, uh, in, in the comics, there's a lot of baggage around him. Initially in the comics, Shang-Chi's dad was a problematic character named Fu Manchu, who was in a lot of ways just an epitome of an Asian stereotype. And uh, we wanted to break all of those things. So when we were first talking about who to cast for this, the first person I said was Tony Leung. The next thing I said was, but there's no way we're going to get him. But what I thought was by saying Tony Leung is the type of actor that we need to get for this role defined what that character needed to be. Like we needed an actor of Tony's caliber would be interested in playing that character. And I honestly never thought in a million years I would be able to, one, just get on the phone with Tony and talk about the character, which I somehow found myself doing a few weeks later. I also had no idea that Tony would then agree to do the movie. <laughs> the conversation I had with him was was actually very candid and open, and we started talking about family, and we started talking about relationships, and 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 that's that was kind of our window into this character and who he is, and how even though he is technically the villain of our movie and he does do some very bad things um we talked about that the the root of those bad things is is love um it's misguided love it's it's the pain that comes from losing somebody that you love and and the lashing out that comes from that but tony is like i mean nobody could have been a more of a legend in my head working with him made him even more of a legend. He did not disappoint. I just instantly saw why he's so good, because he works three times harder than everybody else on set. I mean, he is at the level where he could just escape into his trailer and come out for one take and then be like, peace out, I'm gone. But he's the type of actor who, as soon as we have the cameras up, he is there. He has his chair put right next to the camera. He never goes back to his trailer. He's never on his phone. And he sits and he watches everything that people are, are doing as we're setting up the camera for sometimes two, three hours. He'll just sit and watch what our shots are, what we're planning. And then by the time it's time for him to step in, I don't even have anything to explain to him because I'd say like, okay, so Tony, our shot is, and he'd say like, uh, I, I know, I've been watching, I know what the shot is. So then he just goes in and he does it. He nails it every time because he's also one of the most prepared actors I've ever worked with. Throughout my life, the 10 rings gave our family power. If you want them to be yours one day, you have to show me you are strong enough to carry them. Michelle Yeoh, also a legend. You are a product of all who came before you. The legacy of your family 
are your mother, and whether you like it or not, you are also your father. Also, just an incredibly hard worker, incredibly prepared. What was surprising to me about Michelle Yeoh is how fun she is and how silly she is. Every time she steps on set, everybody gets happy. It doesn't matter who you are. She treats everybody with the same level of respect and joy, and she just loves coming to work. And so they were legends before. They're even more legends now in my mind. And I noticed that you brought uh, Joel P. West on board for the music, and he's someone you started working with very early on and have kind of like brought along on a number of your films. Yeah, Joel came on and, and did an incredible score for us from, from the time that we were still in script phase. He was already doing his research on Chinese or orchestration, Chinese instrumentation. Trying to find the balance between something that is clearly of the Marvel universe, but also something that is inspired by Chinese and Asian compositions throughout the years. Also was able to bring uh, Nat Sanders, who edited Short Term 12. He was one of the editors on our movie. And Joy, my sister, was worked in the costume department. So it was great to have some good friends coming on board. See, it's that whole sense of community coming back around. <laughs> As a huge fan of like Hong Kong action films, what was it like creating some of the action scenes in this? Because that's always a highlight for me in some of these films. If that's a highlight for you, you're going to love this movie, Beth. Um, it's, <laughs> it's really special. You have the wrong guy. Does he look like he can fight? Come on, bro. <laughs> Brad Allen, who has done all of Edgar Wright's movies, and um, he actually started out in Jackie Chan's camp as a stunt person um, and trained under Jackie. His number one priority, which he literally was stressing out about getting it right, was to get the real Chinese martial arts right and to put together a team of the best people that we could get to make that happen. And each choreographer that he put together were specifically designed for the, the sequence that and the style of the sequence that we were created. So you'll see sequences that will be very reminiscent of Jackie Chan film and that style of choreography. You'll also see sequences that are more inspired by 
Jet Li's Tai Chi Master, or reminiscent of Crouching Tiger. And then you'll see us see the movie take you to a much more heightened Marvel level that you'll see inspiration from Chinese anime, you'll see inspiration from fantasy wuxia movies, and there's a little bit of everything in this movie in a, in a really wonderful way because it, it still all feels like one journey, but you know everybody worked really hard to get it right, and I feel really, really happy about that. Well, I can't wait to see it, and I'm very sad that my grandfather, who was Chinese, passed away before this film came out because he was... He gave my son a sword when he was like six to show him how to like, yo, you'd be an extra in my little Mulan play and you'll do some oh, sword really? play. Oh. <laughs> so he would have loved this, I know. <laughs> well, I just, for one last question, I saw that you have like a lot of TV projects coming up and I was just curious, what kind of things about television attracts you and what do you feel you might be able to do different in that kind of a format than you can do in feature films? I mean, I, I just like changing it up a bit, you know, and, and I, I love working in features, um, but I'm very curious about working in TV and being able to watch characters grow and evolve past the two-hour mark. I've only been able to track characters for about two hours, you know, and so to be able to, you know, if, if Short Term 12 became a TV show and I'd be able to continue to track Grace and Mason's story and and see where they go. And I would find that to be very fulfilling. So there is something about the television creative process that is very alluring to me. But that's definitely not to say I'm going to stop doing features because I love it. And I also noticed you had a few directing consulting credits on some short films. And I'm just curious if you kind of take very seriously this notion of kind of mentoring other filmmakers and, you know, extending that sense of community to younger filmmakers coming into the business? Yeah, I do. I, I didn't really have very many mentors, but the people who believed in me, you were on this list, Beth, but the, the number of people who believed in me when I, when I didn't really have a ton to show for it, but there, you know, there's people like you who just champion people who are passionate, whether the, the talent is there yet or not i think it's so important to have champions who are just saying yeah go for it go for it and i do think that there are more people like me who maybe need you know i i was pretty shy i was not the go-getter type of person who's going to just knock down walls in order to break into a, an industry i was like running from the industry <laughs> that's that's why I stayed in San Diego for so long. But I think it's really important for the vibrancy of our industry, particularly with all the changes that are happening. And I think for us to stay relevant and stay vibrant, I think we need to introduce as many new voices as possible and start telling stories that really represent the world that we live in. So I do think mentorship is a big part of that process and helping to usher people into this crazy industry and allow them to tell stories that I could never tell because it's just not my experience. Well, I'm glad what I did helped, but I have to say your talent was quite readily visible from early on. So <laughs> someone <laughs> well, else would have noticed it and championed it. 
at some point. I want to thank you so much for talking to me. It's been so great catching up with you. Like I said, it's been 20 years almost, and I feel like that's a crazy amount of time. <laughs> it really is, isn't it? <laughs> and you've done so much. Well, you have too, Beth. Thank you so much for everything that you do for the community. That wraps up another edition of KPBS listener-supported Cinema Junkie. It was such a joy to reconnect with Destin Cretton and to find that while he's excelled as a filmmaker and found great success, he's still the same sweet, thoughtful guy I met two decades ago. And all this talk about Asian families and community has inspired me to turn to some of my Chinese grandfather's recipes for this month's Geeky Gourmet videos. I'll be whipping up some Asian treats for you to bring to your screening of Shang-Chi and sharing some memories of cooking with my grandfather, who loved movies and would have loved Shang-Chi's spectacular action. I'd like to acknowledge the community that makes Cinema Junkie happen. Podcast coordinator, Kinsey Moreland. Technical director, Rebecca Chacon. And director of sound design, Emily Jankowski. Next time on Cinema Junkie, I speak with Brian Hu, artistic director of the San Diego Asian Film Festival, about the evolution of Asians on screen, from the negative images of Yellow Peril to the positive impact of Bruce Lee's action hero of the 1970s. So get ready to kick some ass and shatter some stereotypes. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Hakamondo, your resident cinema junkie.